Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent words to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also the the one known as Didymus, said, the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them for the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even Though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister, Mary, aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. When the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept him from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you very much, Keith, for reading that for us. Um, It is disorientating, isn't it, Um, when someone that you think you know says or does something that catches you by surprise, Um, and suddenly you see them in a a new light. Um, I don't know what that might be. Um, Perhaps um, you've got a friend who's a six-foot-six, 17-stone rugby player, and you discover that he likes to do needlepoint, and you think, ooh, Oh, now, that, I was not expecting that. Or, I don't know, you've, you've got, a, you've got a, a bit of a nerdy uh, computer programmer type friend, um, and one day you discover that he writes romantic poetry. And you think, ooh. Now, at that point, you've got a choice, haven't you? You, you can either sort of eliminate this new piece of information from your brain, because it doesn't quite compute. You know, it doesn't fit with a person that you thought you knew. Um, But if you do that, then your relationship with that person will flounder to some extent, won't they? Because you're no longer relating to the the real person. You're relating to the person inside your own head. Now, if your relationship with that person is going to flourish, it's got to adapt and change to this new bit of information. How are you doing with John's Gospel this year? If you've been here for a while, you'll know that we're working our way through John's account of the life of Jesus. How are you doing in adapting to the new things that you're seeing? Of course, you may say, well, I've read John's Gospel before. There's nothing new. Uh, Isn't there? As you read these accounts and and as as you really pause and think about them, are you not seeing new things about the way that Jesus responds the things he says, the things he does? And, and are you allowing them to, to, to let you shift in the way that you relate to him? Because as the new things get put in front of you, as you, you, you wrestle with them, either your relationship with Jesus will flourish as you respond to what you're finding here, or it will flounder if you don't adapt and respond uh, to what you're discovering as we read Last week, we saw extraordinary claims. 
If you weren't here last week, we've, we've taken two weeks over this account that Keith just read for us. So much here. Last week, I, I was wanting us to look particularly at the words of Jesus, the claims he makes uh, of himself. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He's not saying, I have access to divine power. Be an extraordinary thing to say, but, but that's not what he says. He goes further than that. He doesn't say, I've got access to divine power. He says, I am divine power. I am the resurrection and the life. It resides within me. Because it's not that Jesus just has access to divine power. He is God on earth. And he validates that extraordinary claim by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, that was our focus last week as we thought about the claims uh, of Jesus. But this week, I want us to, 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 to look at this account, as it were, a second time, now not focusing so much on the words that Jesus speaks as on the emotions that Jesus displays. Uh, back of the service sheet, three headings around this theme of emotion. Um, emotional engagement, uh, emotional indignation, um, and then emotional response. Uh, so first, um, e- emotional engagement. One of, the, one of the funny things, one of the intriguing things about the, the way that this um, narrative plays out is that both of the women, both Martha and then Mary, asked Jesus exactly the same question. Did you notice that? So in verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then a bit later on, uh, when Mary comes rushing out of the house um, uh, and goes to Jesus in the same spot, she says exactly the same words, verse 32. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what what do you think that was? Seems odd at first that uh, they should happen to ask exactly the same thing. If you were writing a fictional account, you probably wouldn't do it like that. You'd have them ask something different. But I guess that the reason that they both asked the same thing is because of what had been going on uh, over the last uh, few days. Can you picture it? As their brother's sickness worsened, as bit by bit uh, his life began to ebb away. Did they take it in turns, perhaps, to be at his bedside? Uh, And as they did so, as they watched his sickness worsen and worsen, and then as they went through the funeral, and as they rolled that stone into the mouth of the cave where they'd laid his body, don't you think the thought that was in their minds was, where is he? Why isn't he coming? Doesn't he care? Why hasn't he come to us? That must have been the question at the forefront of their minds. They'd seen his ability to to do miraculous things. They knew that he loved their brother Lazarus. So the constant recurring thought was, why? Why hasn't he come? Because, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. It's not so much a statement of faith, is it? As a complaint. At the very least, an expression of bewildered confusion. 
So I don't think it's odd that they should ask this question. What is a little bit odd is that Jesus answers it in two such radically different ways. To Martha, Jesus responds with truth, with theology, with a declaration. I am the resurrection and the life. In a sense, he he almost pushes back against her complaint with a little bit of theology for her. She says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds, in effect, by saying, I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. This isn't done yet. Don't you believe that? With Martha, he offers truth to her, teaches her. But with Mary, something completely different happens, doesn't it? There are barely any words at all. With Mary, he spends not, responds not, not with truth, not with words, uh, not with a bit of teaching. Uh, Jesus responds emotionally. Let me read it again. Uh, follow it from verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. How do you explain these two very different responses to Martha and then to Mary? Simply, I think, by recognizing that they are two very different people. You you get that impression even from the way in which Mary approaches Jesus throws herself prostrate at his feet, weeping. She herself is emotional, and Jesus responds to her with emotion. And people are different like that, aren't they? Some people, in the midst of loss or in the midst of hardship, they want you to talk to them. They want you to to, to help them to think it through. But there are other people in the midst of their loss and pain and hurt who just want you to be with them. They prefer that you didn't say a thing. Just be with me, alongside me. Weep with me. And the great thing is that Jesus seems to know exactly who needs what. And so often we don't, do we? We're so clunky with this. There's someone going through really hard things, and all they want is for someone to to understand them, to be with them in their pain, and we are rabbiting away. Got all these things that we think they ought to hear. And they just want us to shut up and be with them in their pain. They don't want lots of words spoken to them at that moment. But, But then the next day we're with somebody else, and we're now in major empathy mode, sitting with them, ready to, 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 to feel all that they're feeling. And actually, they're desperate for us to say something, desperate for us to, 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 to remind them of truths that are precious to them in that moment. 
we're so often clunky in those kind of moments. Why? Well, partly it may be that we're just not very good at discerning the other person. Jesus perfectly knows what people need. We often miss it. But it can also be that we have our own particular strong suit. And some of us, some of us love to deliver a good argument. Given a moment, we will spot error at 100 yards, and we're in there, ready to confront. And that's what we do. But the trouble is we do it all the time. Others of us, well, we're less into the confronting mode, we're more into the comforting load. And, and at every opportunity, we have our metaphorical blanket to wrap around people and give them a big cuddle. And we do that to everyone and anyone at every opportunity because we have our strong suit. Now, the, the, the lovely thing here about Jesus is that as the perfect man, he has the full range the full repertoire, as it were, of responses to us in our need. Jesus knows who needs what, and he knows how to deliver it. Which is kind of exciting, isn't it? If you think that, one of the, one of the ways in which a growth in Christ-likeness will work its way out is getting better at this. As we grow more like Jesus in the Christian life, we will become better at knowing how to speak into people's pain and difficulty because we will become more like him. So first, um, an emotional engagement. Um, Secondly, um, emotional indignation. Um, There's something important in this passage which doesn't emerge terribly well in pretty much any English translation because the translators are all a little bit coy about pushing the meaning of of some of the words here um, in the way that they really should be pushed. Um, Two different words are used to describe the emotional reaction that Jesus displays uh, there in verse 33. Uh, What we read in um, our translation here is that he sees Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, and he is deeply moved in spirit, and troubled. Uh, Two uh, words in the original are being translated there. The second of them, troubled, has the sense of being kind of stirred and agitated. Um, It's uh, the same word that um, gets used in John chapter 14. Uh, Do do you remember that moment when Jesus says to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled? Um, And they are troubled because Jesus is talking about him dying. And so that that really has stirred them up, um, the idea that Jesus is going to die. It's also used um, in the account of Jesus walking on the water, where the disciples are troubled by seeing this figure walking on the water. So there's something quite strong about this troubled. They really are quite stirred. Well, what what kind of stirred? Well, the other word helps us further. Um, Deeply moved is a bit neutral. Doesn't doesn't tell us you know kind of what what sort of um, emoting is going on here, but the original word is is much clearer by placing it in the direction of uh, of kind of rage. Um, I guess we we might think in terms of indignation. Um, may seem odd, but the the word that is used here sometimes gets used to describe a horse snorting. If you can imagine that, 
sort of that sort of just a sort of rage. Um, so it has the sense of outrage, um, of um, of almost roaring in anger uh, in response to what he's seeing. Well, now, now that's odd, isn't it? Uh, and that leaves us with a bit of a puzzle. If that's what John is telling us happens here, that Jesus is outraged, angry, who's he angry with? Is he angry with Mary for doubting him? Is he angry with all the mourners for, for, for weeping when they shouldn't be weeping? Is he indignant because they don't believe in him and don't believe that he can sort it out? Well, there are some people who, who believe that that might be what's going on. I, personally, I can't see it. The way that he deals with Mary and Martha um, just doesn't seem consistent with him being angry with them. Uh, so others um, say, well, perhaps he's, he's angry with God the Father for letting this all happen. Now, some people do react in that kind of way to grief, don't they? They become angry with God. But that's pretty hard to fathom here, isn't it? Given what we know of the relationship between Jesus and his Father. Or, or indeed, for the way that he's spoken about this event. Um, he said earlier in uh, our reading that he was glad that he wasn't there, glad that it was going to turn out this way because it would mean glory would come to him. It's pretty hard to imagine that he could be angry with God for letting it happen given that it leads to him being glorified. So what is it? Who is he angry with? I think we have to arrive at the, the conclusion that his anger is directed towards death itself that he's angry and indignant at the, the damage, the heart, the, hurt, the the hurt and harm that is coming upon God's creation because sin and death are doing that damage. And Jesus hates it. He ha- gazes on these broken lives, the shattered hopes, the deep despair, the ruin that death is bringing to his people. And it outrages him. One writer says that it is as though Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, not, not sort of overcome with sort of weepy emotion, but more like a champion arriving ready for battle. So outraged that he will fight to get what needs to be done, done. Uh, you may well not have seen uh, the Liam Neeson film Taken. It's not an entirely savoury film. Um, if you haven't seen it, then uh, it portrays Liam Neeson as sort of, in, at some levels, a, a sort of a fairly, um, apparently, ordinary and pretty ineffectual father. Um, who isn't doing a very good job of uh, fathering his daughter. Um, And she then goes on a gap year trip or something to Paris, uh, where she gets scooped up by some um, sex traffickers and kidnapped. But then in the plot, um, it emerges that Liam Neeson is, in fact, in a former life, a a CIA agent or something, um, highly skilled and equipped in dealing with just such a scenario. And so it is that Liam Neeson flies across the Atlantic um, and arrives in Paris um, ready to wage war 
against this gang of sex traffickers, which he does fairly effectively, blowing up most of Paris um, into the bargain. Um, finally and gloriously liberating her on a, on a barge uh, flowing down the Seine, if I remember rightly. Um, anyway, the thing is, us men love it. Why? Well, because in our sort of rather deluded fantasy life, we all imagine that, that if someone precious to us were in such dire circumstances, then we would, Liam Neeson-esque, soar into action and gloriously uh, display our excellence uh, in a mighty work of liberation. And of course the thing is, sort of deluded fantasy. Um, And spiritually we can do something terribly similar, actually. And we very quickly want to step into the role of the hero. But of course spiritually we're not in the role of the hero, are we? spiritually, you and I are the kidnapped girl taken captive. And what you and I need is a champion, a hero, who will come to our rescue and liberate us. That's what we need to understand Jesus doing here. Driven by indignation, driven by outrage, at all that sin and death has done to his creation and his people. Jesus is determined to bring liberation, whatever it costs. Which brings us finally uh, to an emotional response. Uh, Because we've not yet exhausted the range of Jesus' emotions. Um, sandwiched, as it were, between those two references to his outrage um, is something rather different. Uh, We read in verse 34 that when he asks, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see. Jesus weeps. There's an oddness, isn't there, about these tears of Christ? An oddness, not least, because he knows what's about to happen, I take it. He knows precisely that he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So you could imagine that at one level, instead of weeping, he could just say, ah, no, easy, everyone. Relax, calm down, it's fine. No um, no need to worry. I'm going to sort this out. It could be that kind of a sort of pragmatic, um, I can manage this response. But it's not what he does, because he is moved. His emotions are stirred by what he sees before him. Jesus isn't some distant deity, uh, sort of dispassionately sorting out the world's problems. He is a compassionate friend. He loves Lazarus. You remember the way that the, the sisters sent the message Jesus, the, the one you love, is sick. Jesus, it seems that people knew that there were particular people who Jesus had formed a relationship with and could be identified as somebody that Jesus particularly loved. And Jesus is moved by that love. Moved to tears 
at the pain he sees that has come upon those he loves in their loss. I, I think we could, we could say, you know, in the, in the two weeks that we've had looking at this, there's some sense, last week, as we focused mainly on Jesus' response to Martha, what we saw there was Jesus revealing his, his deity. I am the resurrection and the life. And I think you could almost say that in this second response, this response to Mary, Jesus reveals his humanity. He weeps. Faced by pain and loss, here is the way that the perfect man responds. Emotionally. With weeping. But if that is his emotional response, what then of ours? What, what might we conclude? Because it's not enough, is it, to find Jesus intellectually intriguing, to delight that he's cognitively coherent. Jesus is calling us, God is calling us, not so much to be fascinated, but to fall in love with Jesus Christ. So, as we conclude, I need to ask, are you stirred emotionally by this account? As you gaze upon this Jesus, see what he is capable of, see how he reacts and interacts emotionally with these people, does it stir you in your heart? Are you seeing him differently this morning? As you see both his power and his compassion and the way that he doesn't stand off, are you being stirred to love him? Not just to have right thoughts about him, to gather a little bit more data about him, but are you being moved at the core of your being in love for Christ? It would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that as a church, I am not now speaking about our strongest suit, that we are not made up, I don't think, of a cross-section of the most emotionally expressive people in Cambridge. Just gaze around when we're singing and you will have some indication that that is the case. We could find ourselves in other church congregations where expressed emotion would be a lot more evident. See, we're different. But it wouldn't be a wrong thing, would it, to aspire to grow in our right emotional response to Jesus Christ? To express the feelings that should rightly be expressed as we behold such a saviour who has acted in this way towards us. It wouldn't be an inappropriate thing to pray, would it, that, that I might love Christ more, that my heart might be stirred more fully, more completely, and that I might learn to be emotionally expressive as I worship him, whether in private 
uh, or in public. I think that would be a good prayer because it would take us more towards the likeness of Christ, the perfect man, who faced with something deeply emotional, responds with emotion. Let me lead us uh, in a prayer. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the portrait John has given us uh, of our Lord Jesus, uh, for the way that he is, uh, under the inspiration of your spirit, uh, woven together uh, these many incidents in Christ's life, just a, a section of them, as he tells us, um, and has done so in a way that, that helps us to, to perceive uh, what Jesus is like and how we pray that uh, you'd, you'd take uh, this picture of Christ and uh, use it to stir our hearts, uh, stir us uh, in love uh, for this Jesus. Uh, who is the resurrection and is the life, uh, who has power. But stir us in love for this Jesus who feels such passion for us and uh, loves us uh, with a love that will not be denied. Uh, Please uh, help us uh, to respond to you with all that we are, uh, heart and mind and will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.